0: Our scripture readings today uh, come from Psalms, Luke, and Acts, Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Is highly exalted. Luke 24 verses 44 through 53. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord.
1: One of the wonderful things about the church calendar is that it routinely revisits very important aspects of the Christian faith on a yearly cycle, and so this is now the third year in a row in which on Ascension Sunday we've discussed the things about Jesus Christ's ascension, what they imply, that was the first year, that is, his ascension implies his kingship and his universal sovereignty over all the nations of the earth to gather them into one people, as we see in Revelation 4 and 5, a great multitude surrounding the throne of God, composed of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, The year after that, last year, we looked at Jesus Christ's uh, ascension commands or the commands that he gave right before the ascension as giving the disciples a mission to go on. That's really also been the focus of our time in Easter this year as well. For the last few weeks, we've been focusing on how do we understand Christ to be giving a mission to the disciples, which was to go on for the rest of history until the second coming and here this is reinforced by our readings in the psalms luke and acts one but this year i want to look at two of the greatest aspects of the day of ascension and those two great aspects are tools which jesus christ has saw fit to give to his people and those tools are the understanding of the scriptures and being clothed with power from on high to be witnesses. These two tools are actually really one, one tool in a sense. They are the tools that God has given his church. And these tools are not uh, mutually exclusive. It is not, it is not possible to merely understand the scriptures and not have the power of God as we'll look at a few references today. And likewise, it is not possible to be filled with the Spirit of God and to be completely ignorant of the Scriptures. To be truly filled with the Spirit of God, to be truly understanding the Scriptures, it has to be a symbiosis. There has to be a flow of Spirit and Word, Word and Spirit, in both life and ministry, the way that we teach, the way that we exhort. It has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it has to be done according to what the Spirit has spoken already, which is the Scriptures the very word of God. And so as we look at this passage today in the context of the mission that Jesus Christ is giving to his disciples, we're going to see how before he leaves, he is declaring the teaching of the kingdom of God and then gives them really three great tools, with two of which we'll look at today. And so at first we look at Christ's continuing mission just in in summary from what's been said already this year in Easter. After that, we're going to look at Christ's authority over understanding. We see Jesus Christ routinely open blind eyes, unstop deaf ears, make the lame to walk. He, he's able to cause new life to come about. And here we see Luke's recording of something that Jesus Christ does in the Spirit in opening up their minds to understand the Scriptures. I believe there's something that Jesus Christ did, and it wasn't simply just his teaching— It wasn't just that he uttered words which caused a reality to take place in their hearts and minds as they heard. I believe that Christ unlocked to them the apostolic hermeneutic, which we see in the New Testament. And I believe that that is is something that every disciple of Christ is supposed to pursue and to take up. We'll look at that in in great detail. We'll look at the promise of the Father that Jesus uh, says he will be sending. He is going to be doing something when he ascends at the right hand. He's going to ask the Father. The Father will send the Spirit. We're going to look at what this promise is and what it entails. And then finally, we're going to look at how this actually has a great deal to say about the nature of Christ's second coming. Uh, the, The angels, when they're witnessing to these disciples, this is a great Uh, intentional thing that God has done in putting two angels in the tomb after Christ's resurrection was complete, and also two angels here again attest to the ascension and and then the second coming of Christ. In fact, if you look throughout the scriptures, pretty much the only evidence that we have for the fact that Christ will return is at least in the narrative uh, right here when these angels give this witness. And so I want to look at some of the underlying ideas that are that are in the subtext of what the angels testify of. It is vitally important that we understand what the Bible has to say about the end of history or the second coming of Christ in which he hands the kingdom over to the Father. It's not really the end of history, but it is the end of time as we understand it right now. But it's not the end of God's kingdom, it's merely the end of Christ's sitting on the throne in order to bring about the fullness of God's kingdom. And if, if that sounds strange for you, just, just take it on faith and then go read 1 Corinthians 15 and see that Christ is on the throne doing something He's not simply on the throne enjoying the rain. He's not just enjoying his court and the wonderful worship which he receives in heaven. He is orchestrating things. He is bringing about an intended purpose. And the angels here say something that is mightily important, that he will descend just as he ascended. And so we're going to look at what that implies, what that entails, and how it speaks to our need to get these two tools right. If we don't have these two tools, which we're going to be examining, then we cannot complete the mission that Christ has. And I'm convinced that the text of the scripture, as we're going to see today, says that Christ is returning to a victorious bride, having accomplished the mission that he sent her with. And so with that, let's get started. Um, Jesus gives the mission to the disciples, as we've seen over and over again, John 17, especially the last few weeks, John 5, John 10, John 13. Uh, he he says that as the father has sent me, so also I am sending you. The father sent the son with a purpose. That purpose was to declare the nature of the father and to bring the disciples into the life of God. That is knowing and fellowshipping with God. I heard a wonderful song this week uh, on Friday and it the last line of the chorus, it's this song is talking about the, the purpose for, for man and not just the purpose for man in an abstract way, but the purpose for my life. And it has one of my new favorite chorus lines. It says, I am not fulfilled and they don't put any qualifiers on that. That means fulfilled in everything, fulfilled in fulfilled in life. I am not fulfilled without full communion. And this notion that you were made for communing with God, for fellowshipping with God, and not only knowing God in some spiritual way, but also fellowshipping in the mission that he has in redeeming the world. He not only brings you into the life of God, he not only gives you new birth, recreates you, makes you a new creation, washes you, sanctifies you, sets you on a course with a new life, inhabits you with his spirit. But he does all of those things in order to to give you grace because of his great love and to make you a vessel for his grace to others. The Christian life has no room in it for I'm just going to simply enjoy the blessings of God for myself. You are supposed to be a, uh, a, a, a river more than a lake. Uh, a lake which receives water into it but has no outflow is dead. And a, a lake that has no outflow will eventually be, become dysfunctional. It will become a cesspool. It will just be filled with, with death but a river in which you receive and then pour out. That is really what the, the mission of God is for your life. There is no room in the Christian walk for simply saying, well, I'll get to evangelism a decade from now when I'm mature, or I'll begin to encourage my brothers and sisters five years from now, or ah, when our children are a little bit older, then we'll start reading the Bible with them. There's no room for waiting as disciples. Jesus commissions the disciples, and then gives them authority and begins to send them out. Here, even though as we see in Acts 1, they're about to reveal that they are very ignorant concerning what he's actually talking about, that nevertheless did not prohibit them from obeying him. They waited, received power, and then they were witnesses. And so as disciples of Christ, we are on the same mission that Jesus himself had which he also gave to his apostles who handed it down through the church. Uh this that's that's not correct. John 15. Sorry. Uh so Luke begins this book, the second book, with a short summary of the first book. He says, "In the first book, O Theophilus, I made a short account, and at that at this time he gives a little key to what the book of Acts is about. We looked at this in great detail. Last year, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Note, Luke does not say, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with everything that Jesus did. And that was the book about Jesus, and now here's the book about the church, a completely separate idea. He says, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Verse 2, the qualifier, the fulfillment of that beginning seed idea in that word began until the day he was taken up. The first book merely includes all of the mission of Christ on the earth until the ascension. And here, the rest of the book of Acts is the mission of Christ through his spirit working in the disciples. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so this second book is the history of, or it's a faithful recording of, what the apostles were doing, which was the act of Jesus Christ. If you want more textual evidence for this, look at what happens when Saul is on the road and Jesus encounters him. Saul is arresting Christians with real names. They were real people. He was persecuting them. And Jesus shows up to Saul and he says to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with his people so severely so intensely that he considers persecution against the church to be persecution against him why because the church faithfully executing in the grace of God is doing the work of Jesus Christ on the earth where we get consumed with our own concerns and our own mission we divert from or we slide away it's a subversion of the grace of God it's not accurately and faithfully aspiring to be all that Christ desires for his bride and so a bride that's made made a right helper for the husband is appropriate. This is why a theology of marriage is so important to understanding Christian theories of church because this is really what Christ is all about. He wants a bride who is helping him, not a bride who is constantly... Not helping him and being a distraction. Nevertheless, when John the Baptist and Christ begin their teaching ministries, they begin with one sentence repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what they mean by that is that the reign of God is coming to Israel, and there are things which cannot survive when the reign of God shows up. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near, it's at the door. Things that are at the door are not put off for thousands of years. Christ said the kingdom was close. He brought the kingdom and then he gives the disciples that very same message. What does it say in verse three? He appeared to them during 40 days and was speaking about the kingdom of God. He was instructing the disciples to understand what is it? What is the message that we have? And that message is that Christ is king and Caesar is not. God rules and Satan is being defeated, and there is nothing that is exalted in the pride of man which can survive the coming wave of God and His kingdom. And so, this is the same central theme that was the focus of the apostles, and evidently, this is the dis- the disciples or the apostles taking up the baton that Christ Himself had. If you're if you're uh, knowledgeable about running, you know there's this. Uh, thing in in running that is called a relay race, and oftentimes uh, one runner will do 200 meters or 400 meters, and then someone else will do it, or there's other races where it's four people who do 100 meters, what have you, but the way in which they they don't even have a tag team system where you just, oh, I tagged this person, because you could cheat that way. It just looked like we touched, but we didn't actually touch. They have a baton that is passed to prove that you were both there at the same time. And you received the same, there was a continuation of carrying forward the baton. The disciples apparently, according to Luke's account here, are taking up the very same concerns and teaching that Jesus had. Which is, God is king over all, repent, begin to reorient your life towards God's kingdom instead of man's kingdom. In commissioning the apostles, Christ gives them three great tools, two of which we'll look at today. One of them is the promise of his presence. We we know this from Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. As soon as Jesus says, that they're to go into all the world and disciple all the nations, not just individual peoples within nations. Disciple the nations, bringing them into the life of God, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Spirit. He then says, lo, in, in the King James, that's how Jesus talks, lo, I am with you always, he, he promises to be present. That is, first and foremost, the, the power by which the rest of these tools begin to function. Christ's active presence in his church. What does this mean? This means that we cannot use the church for our own goals. We can also not abuse the church and subvert the teaching into something that is man-centered. Many churches spend, I, I'm all for healthy marriages, I'm all for healthy raising of children. In fact, I believe that without applying your faith, it, you, you don't really have a faith, as, as James says. But you, we cannot simply turn the church into a group of people which gives encouraging teachings which help me improve my life for whatever I want my life to look like, whether it be a really good marriage and kids, but no actual life of, the, of God in our home or a really great career and business wisdom, but you know, not faithfully stewarding my time so as to, to seek God's kingdom first. We cannot use the church, as it has been used at various times throughout history, in, and abused in this way, to use it for whatever our hearts desire. We have to be on mission as a people. And in fact, where the church is not on mission, the church is slowly slipping from her calling. And so even as a church which seeks to put our faith into practice in in bringing a demonstration of Christ's kingdom in every sphere of life, individual lives, family lives, business, education, art, finance, economics, even though that is true, we have to do those things in a missional way. Church which is doing kingdom right is not a churchized ghetto. And And what I mean by a ghetto is not to insult people who are poor, but rather to say that often the church creates these little spheres in which we have Christian music and Christian art and christian economics and these These spheres are done in such a way that often the quality is is missing and it's it's often done emulating the world's style in in a, in a desire to hopefully be relevant, but it's done within the context of Christian. Community. It's never done in such a way that's actually reaching out to the people and reaching out to those who would be encountered by it. Everything that we do in seeking to demonstrate the kingdom of God must necessarily have a missiological aspect to it. It much must reach people, and if we are just simply producing Christian stuff for the Christian culture. And I think we've already missed our mission. Anyway, so the understanding of the scriptures and the baptism in the spirit are two vital tools which are really uh, sustained by and upheld by the fact that Christ is actively present in the church. It is Christ's church. It is not my church. It is not your church. And therefore, Christ's word and the word which he gave to his apostles as faithfully recorded in the scriptures is to shape our churches. And that means everything that our church Uh, has in its life ought to emulate and seek to put into force that which is in the New Testament, especially concerning the life of the church together. So, though the Spirit of God had rightly inspired the prophets of old, the people of Israel routinely misunderstood what those prophets had written. This is probably the greatest theme of Jesus' battles with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, over and over again, they demonstrate that they do not understand what the scriptures say. And Jesus actually has something to say about this, but passages which are plainly speaking of God's Christ were completely veiled. They would read something like the psalm that we wrote, and they would think, oh, well, this is just talking about God going up in victory or going up in war. But it's not actually talking about that, it's talking about Christ's going up, as we're going to see. And so Paul actually mentions this in his letter to the Corinthians. He talks about there being a veil which lies over their heart because they do not know Christ. It's not merely an inability to understand something intellectually. It's not a deficiency of mental capacity. It's a blindness of spirit, which is both cause and effect of an ignorance of the Spirit of God and the Scriptures of God. Christ, when he battled the Pharisees and Sadducees, demonstrated this. He said in Matthew uh, 22, he said, the reason you are mistaken is because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. These are not things to be divorced. These are things to be married together and to be utilized together. And this is really one of the graces that's made available in the gospel. The gospel is not just freedom from sin. It's not just pardon from a sentence of everlasting punishment because of our rebellion against God. It's also an avenue to know God. And without the gospel, we never had that opportunity. Jesus Christ says, the pure in heart will see God. And yet the rest of the scripture tells us that no one is pure. No one is seeking God. And so the gospel has at its very core, this idea of knowing God and making him known. And so just as men can't see God in their sin, that is they're blind and unable to see him. So also they're unable to understand the scriptures rightly. This is why it's I usually, when whenever someone who is not a, a Christian is debating a finer point of the scriptures and trying to accuse God of some sort of sin, I usually don't even engage with them on that level because they're blind and they're unable to understand the scriptures. Now, of course, God uses grace, and I am, am in no way um, saying that the, have Have you all heard of the Gideons? You, you know what I'm talking about? when? Okay. I'm not... In no way am I saying that the Gideons haven't done a good thing in making available copies of the scriptures in hotels, but the point of of God's grace is that the scriptures cannot just simply be picked up by an unbeliever and have that be the only avenue of God's grace to that person. It routinely does not work that way. He saw fit to commission disciples who would go and preach. He did not say to go and just fax people copies of the Bible and that would be enough. It requires a right understanding of the Bible and it requires someone whose mind has been opened by Christ in order to explain and to demonstrate the things of the scriptures. The scriptures have to be interpreted by someone and if that person who is interpreting them is blind, they will not interpret them rightly. As much as I love the doctrines of the Reformed tradition that talk about the glory of Scripture, if they're abused, if those doctrines are perverted from being Scripture is our final rule of faith to my understanding of Scripture is my final rule of faith, then woe are we. And in fact, I would say that we have seen the fruit of that way of thinking, and it is not good. Nevertheless, Jesus said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law and the prophets and Psalms. This is just a short summary. These are the titles of the sections of the Old Testament scriptures. What Jesus is saying is that there is a, a massive amount of reference and material in these portions of scriptures which speak of him and indeed everything in those books speak of him. And so he says they had to be fulfilled and they were fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I don't think, again, as I said earlier, I don't think that this is simply Jesus saying something and then, oh, I got it. I think Christ is doing a miracle. He is opening up the minds of sinful men to understand the holy words of God. And understanding this, we ought to seek Christ for this benediction all the more. The apostles understand the scriptures according to the right interpretation by and concerning Christ. That is to say that the the apostles, as they write the New Testament, include thousands of allusions to things which are seemingly veiled in the Old Testament. This is why I think it's helpful to read the Bible from front to back or from a few different places all at once and then do it again and start over and over and over again. Because there are things which are in the Old Testament which speak of Christ that the apostles have not directly addressed. And this interpretive hermeneutic is contained in the New Testament scriptures. That is to say that the New Testament teaches us how to read the Old Testament. Now, this does not mean that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. There is one God forever. Amen. That, and it is not as if God treated people badly in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, he treats them really well. And in fact, if anything could be said, the New Testament is much more severe. In Revelation, we see a smoke and a fire that it never ends and it ascends before the throne of the Father forever. And that's a lot worse than simple war and, and pestilence in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, um, God is a God of love, brother. Um, Laughter he is a God of love and he loves he loves his creation so much that he punishes sin because it destroys his creation. And so, so Jesus is opening their minds to understand the scriptures and then they begin to exemplify what it means to have a mind that has been opened by Christ. And that mind which has been opened by Christ is something that is for each disciple. You should be about uh, uh, receiving that. And that that in in no way is just a one-time experience. All those who desire to take up the same mantle, that is, those who recognize that they are called to mission like the disciples, ought all the more to seek the Spirit of God to obtain Christ's benediction over their minds so as to understand the Scriptures. My desire for you, I, I, as, as a pastor, I have really two great desires. I, I desire that you would live a life that is constantly in the presence of God. I'm convinced after living that way for more than five years that to live in in a season of dryness, even for a few days, is disastrous. And to imagine returning to a life without the active presence of God is unthinkable to me. I desire that for you, but I also desire that you would not take this book and look at it and say, I still don't really understand what's going on here. I I had the privilege by the grace of God to write a a small curriculum for the pre-readers in our church. And one of the things that I was just over, I was moved to emotional, you know, tenderness because of the grace of God, as I looked over these last, I set it up as a two-year system and it's, it's a wonder, you can have a copy of it if, if you want. But it's just a wonderful thing to be able to, to know and, and say, now I understand what God was doing with Israel for those years. Now I understand why the kingdom was divided and I understand why the exiles happened and how God routinely warned them and warned them and warned them and how as Paul takes up that theme, if the natural branch could be removed, woe are you, those who have been grafted in, if you should presume upon the grace of God. To understand the scriptures, to be a student of the scriptures is to hear from Christ himself and that is the most precious thing I could ever ask for you to have. So, this is now our charge as disciples of Christ to take the gospel of the nations. He says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Clearly, Christ in this very sentence has something much greater in view than the original 12 having the grace gifts and the understanding of the scriptures. It is not the case, brothers and sisters, that the apostles were a special class who just simply, when they died, the grace of God was somewhat sealed on the earth and there was nothing else to be given. Now, the canon was simply closed and the writings were finished, but that in no way means that this mission, which Christ says, is fulfilled. The disciples and the apostles did not make it to the new world, and all nations includes the new world. And in fact, when we're done with that, we're going to go to Antarctica and we're going to start speaking to the penguins. Amen. <laughs> I got one person listening. She does love penguins. I forgot about that. The point is, Christ is king over everything and until all people know, the mission is not fulfilled. Christ's kingdom will be demonstrated in every place. So, Christ opens their mind to understand the scriptures, and then immediately after this, immediately after saying that that he will give them this mission, he then gives them the other half of these these two-part tools. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power. The grounding of Christ's command shows us the the importance of the Spirit of God. It is not the case that as Christians, you and I need to travel to Jerusalem and find some upper room and then go there and wait. But the understanding or the spiritual or general principle behind the command still is in force. Should the apostles not have the Spirit, they would have no power or signs, nor zeal or boldness for witnessing. Do this thought experiment just really quickly. Take Peter, who ran from a girl talking to him at a fire, at a campfire. I mean, what a cozy setting. He's he's running away from people, denying that he ever knew Christ, and then take that same Peter, unconverted, unrestored, unsanctified without the grace of the Holy Spirit and then put him in Jerusalem a few weeks after they kill Christ in which all of the the Pharisees and Sadducees are going around persecuting the disciples of Jesus and then think what his address would have been at the day of Pentecost without the giving of the Spirit if the Jews somehow found out where they were. They were hiding, remember? Remember how we looked at that in, in Easter after the, they were hiding because of the fear of the Jews. Without the giving of the Spirit, there would have been no church. There would have been no apostolic witness, and the mission would have completely failed. Now, of course, that is against the will of God, and so even hypothetically thinking about that is absurd. Nevertheless, the Spirit is vitally important. Though Luke finished his account with the command to wait, he reemphasizes it at the second book. I want you to take a look at this. In Acts 1, Luke expects that Theophilus has a copy of his gospel, And yet, he thinks it's so important to connect the two that he re-emphasizes the command to wait. He doesn't say, just look at the end of Luke. Look at the end of my gospel, read there, and then read this. He actually puts it there again, and he, he records it in slightly a different way to give us a different perspective. Verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And here he actually explains what it is through the words of Jesus recorded faithfully. You heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. After the disciples, they ask a question here, which we've covered in years past and really don't have time to today. Jesus gives them a little slight rebuke, but then he continues on with the command to wait. But you will receive power, verse 8, when, this, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We, we saw at the, um, the teaching series that we did in the Acts of the Apostles that really this is, these are concentric circles. Jerusalem is surrounded by the regions of Samaria and Judea. And from there, Jesus moves on to the nations. It was going, this this zeal was going to carry the gospel to all the nations. Verse nine, and when he said these things, as they were looking, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So here is where the rubber meets the road, even for a church that believes in the active gifts of this, the Holy Spirit and the active baptism in the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, even believing those things, I want you to hear this challenge. Most Christians today, especially in America, accept the ongoing validity of the moral teachings of Christ. That is to say, when Jesus gives the commandments represented in New Testament force, such as Jesus says, you've heard do not murder, but I tell you anyone who is angry with his brother is already guilty of murder. You heard do not lust, but I tell you anyone who looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. Uh, The New Testament hermeneutic or Jesus's interpretation of the law is much more severe. And Christians routinely accept almost at a subconscious level that those commands, those moral teachings still apply to them. Right? Essentially, Christians believe the Bible still applies to them. Right? That's not a very hard concept. And they assume, although there is... Very very little explicit textual evidence saying that there is an ongoing continuity of mission. That's a paradigm which is supported by the scriptures, although there's no didactic teaching. Most Christians believe that when Jesus told the apostles that they were to go into all the nations, that we're supposed to go into all the nations, right? Okay, we've got two points there that most Christians routinely believe, but they are strangely ignorant of the need for the Spirit of God. They hear Jesus saying, love your neighbor, and they say, well, okay, we need to you know, establish soup kitchens and orphanages and battered women's homes and all of these different things, and we need to pass out water with Bible verses on them, and we need to love our neighbor, right? And they hear Jesus' moral teachings about you know, pursuing the kingdom, and they think that that still applies to them. And over and over again, the scriptures say, Jesus gathered his disciples and taught them, or Jesus seeing the crowd taught them. And they, they merely assume at a presuppositional level that those things still apply. And yet, they make a divorce from the spirit of God, the power of God, and the grace of God acting through signs and wonders. And they say those things, those clearly ended with the apostles. But there is absolutely no evidence in the scriptures that that is going on. And there's no way to say that this was an implication of Jesus. This, this is Schizophrenia. This is spiritual blindness. We have bought into and drunk from a deluding spirit which has filled us with ignorance so as to not understand our need for the spirit. When we hear Jesus Christ say, apart from me you can do nothing, we just think, oh, well, we need to abide in Christ in some sort of spiritual way by reading our Bible and praying. No, we need to abide in Christ in an active reality enabled by the spirit of God with the grace of God moving. They presume that most of Paul still applies. Think about the, the the last time you've heard someone give a moral teaching from one of the Pauline epistles. They just, that was written to the church in Corinth, but out of nowhere, they believe, and I think they rightly believe, that that still applies to all the Christians. Because it's in the Bible, the church rightly received the books and letters, but then they say, well, this part of Paul doesn't really apply. Everything else is fine, but 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, those are kind of out there. 13 we'll use for our weddings, but But none of the rest, all the rest is fine, but those spiritual gifts clearly did not apply to the church. They applied only to the apostles. Christ never indicated that the Father would rescind the promise. And if you look at the day of Pentecost and you rightly understand, when Peter is saying that this is the gift of the Father which is for you and to your children and all who are far off, it clearly cannot be defended that the gifts of the spirit and the activity of the spirit in boldness for witnessing and signs and wonders to confirm the word had any, there, there was no idea that that would stop with the apostles. Therefore, knowing that, okay, here's, here's where the rebuke comes. We all, most of us already agree with everything I've said, but here's where the rubber meets the road. We do not have power. You and I, we believed this, But what we do not do is we don't become doers of the word in hearing this and petition God to redeem us, deliver us from our unbelief, and to clothe us with power. There are times occasionally when I moved to a right understanding of this so much that I understand that I am maligning the authority and witness of Jesus Christ as king over everything to the point where I will occasionally, maybe once every three or four months, get on my face in my prayer closet and weep before God. But I believe if you are a continuationist, which is a believer in the doctrine which I just uh, explained, that you should routinely be repenting before God for your lack of power. And your subtle, although, although maybe even at a subconscious level, ignorance of the fact that you need that power. Even though you believe you need it, your prayer life doesn't look like it. And so it's not enough to believe that and to not live it. And here we're going to go with the same thing for the scriptures. Even though you believe that Jesus Christ is represented in all the scriptures, if you don't really know, then you're still at that place where you believe, but you need more help in believing fully. So finally, the angelic witness concerning Christ's second coming shows us what is going to become of the mission of the church. We're about to experience a a very similar thing that just happened a few minutes ago in which I explain a doctrine which most of us already believe and then I'm going to press an implication. Verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, This is an angelic version of what goes up must come down and it must come down in the same manner in which it went up, to put it in a childlike way. So the angels say that he will go up, he will ascend in the same manner or as in the same way that he uh, ascended. He will descend in the same way that he ascended. So the angels testify that Jesus will return in a like manner of the ascension. And this is where we get to our reading at the beginning of today's readings in, first, in, in Psalm 47 when it says that the Lord ascended with a shout and with the trumpet call. Now, I'm gonna read something to you from a book that my wife got me a number of years ago. Were we married at the time? I don't think we were. We were. Um, I would encourage you, it's no mark of spiritual maturity. I would encourage you though, every once in a while, if you're really convinced that you ought to read a book, especially if it looks like a phone book book, to buy those kind of books, because they're often a lot better than some of the modern books that are much shorter. Um, this is a book by a guy by the name of John Gill, and uh, let me just I, I I've mentioned Gill before, but it's helpful to see who he was. John Gill is a Reformed Baptist preacher who was in the pastorate of a church that then Charles Spurgeon inherited, and john gill of the of all the reformers. Um, he's not really an early reformer, he's a very late reformer. Of all the reformed theologians who were writing commentaries on the scripture, I believe John Gill is excellent. There are two things that John Gill does not do well. He is a Baptist, so I think he gets baptism wrong, but it's not that important, um, and it, it won't, you, know, you won't be poisoned by reading John Gill. And then he's also, he's a cessationist, but he's not a hard cessationist, and I, I can explain what that means later um, in private if you care. Which you probably don't. Nevertheless, I just want to prepare you. Just take a just take a breath because you're about to read a sentence that is actually just a segment of a much larger sentence. But it's three slides long, and I'll I'll read it to you. It's a quote from John Gill's commentary called uh, Well, it's not a commentary. It's a systematic theology called a um, a body of doctrinal divinity, and this is on the ascension. If you think Wayne Grudem's book is thick. You ain't seen nothing yet. It's seven volumes, and it's it's amazing. Um, and though the circumstance of his ascension, being attended with a shout and with the sound of a trumpet, is not mentioned in the New Testament in the account of it, that's one phrase, <laughs> yet there is no doubt to be made of it, since the angels present at it told the disciples on the spot that this same Jesus should so come. What that means is that Gil is making an allusion to the disciple, or the, the the angels, said that Jesus would uh, descend in the same way that he ascended, and the rest of the New Testament says that Christ will descend with a shout, with the trumpet call of God. In like manner as they saw him go into heaven, now it is certain that Christ will descend from heaven with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God. And also, since he attended in his ascension with the angels of God, and with some men who rose after his resurrection, there is scarce any question to be made of it, that he ascended amidst their shouts and acclamations. What John Gill is saying here is that the two angels which were in the tomb after the resurrection and the two angels which were here after the ascension say something about the nature of Christ's victory in the ascension, okay? Christ, after he had defeated death completely, then was attested to by two angels. Here, after he had finished the mission on the earth, he was attested by two angels. And this same parallel is what he uses to make the connection. And rather, since he went up as a triumphant conqueror over all his and our enemies, leading captivity captive. What he's saying is, Jesus went up only after he completed his mission. There was a victory which was celebrated at the ascension of Christ. This is why the ascension is such a great day for us as Christians. We celebrate this, we're joyful, we feast, we party. Uh, because Jesus completed the mission that the Father had given him. And that mission included passing on the mission. So how do we know what the end will be? Where's the implication of this? The implication is, if Christ descended only after accomplishing the work with which the Father had given him, then it follows logically that he will only descend after the church finishes the mission that he gave them. What's the sign of his victory? David says concerning the Christ. David uh, says this in Psalm 110. Jesus, in his, in his debate with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, uh, as they're trying to trick him up, he then posits a question to them. How does David call him Lord if he's David's son? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Paul develops this theme. Paul takes up this theme. He doesn't quote it directly, but there's a phrase that is a reference to Psalm 110 in his discussion of the resurrection. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. There Paul is restating the same idea of Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I've made your enemies a footstool. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul is talking about this in the context of the resurrection from the dead when Christ returns. Christ does not return to set up his kingdom. Christ returns when his kingdom is done being set up. Okay? So, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Most eschatologies get this wrong saying that Christ comes and then he establishes his kingdom and then there's a literal thousand year reign. And then after the thousand year reign in which Satan is loosed upon the earth and he deceives the nations, undoing all the great work of the Holy Spirit. Um, then after that, then Christ brings the judgment and the resurrection. But here Paul says that the last time made to be f- defeated is, is death. And then he goes on to say that Christ will then hand the kingdom over to his father and Christ will be subjected. Now it is plain that he is exempted. Anyway. So the point being that this is the doctrine which I've just espoused is a post-millennial view of the eschatology. Now you students in the theology class probably understand that term, but it just means that Christ's return will come post, that is after millennial, the thousand year reign of Christ, which is an illusion in the book of Revelation, to an actual, real uh, demonstration of the king of the kingdom. And that kingdom, which he brought and said is at hand, being made manifest in a, in a real way, not just in a spiritual way. Christ is not just king over the spiritual realm. He is king over everything. And I believe, if you look at history in 500-year chunks, that it's very clear that Christ is reigning. I mean, when's the last time you heard of a, a person dying of dysentery? Not very often, but 200 years ago, it was very, very common. Christ has been giving graces to people through, through the church for all of history. Uh, if, if anyone ever denies actual progress in terms of, um, be it medical or cultural things, just say to them, dentistry. <laughs> you know, just use that word, Dentistry. It's clear that Christ is reigning. It's clear that Christ is bringing about. Now, okay, so most of, most of the people who've been at this church for a very long time have been convinced of the post-millennial hope. And so this doesn't sound anything that's too strange. It's, this isn't a new doctrine. You've, this isn't the first time you've heard of it. Nevertheless, is the understanding of a right view of eschatology merely to get to checking the box of I'm correct in my understanding of what the end of the age looks like? And I would say to you strongly in very certain terms, no, that's totally not the point. If you understand what I just said about the eschatology, about the end of time, if you understand all of that and that hasn't translated for you to being bold in your prayers and bold in your asking of God for grace, and bold in the way that you invest in people and institutions that are Christian and seek to uh, establish his kingdom even stronger, if it hasn't translated to a heart motivation, then you are deceived. You know the, the teaching, but you aren't living like you know the teaching. And so what I would say to you is our ignorance of the Spirit, our need for the Spirit, even though we are continuationists or we believe that the spirit is still for today, that is just as severe of a problem as understanding what the end of time looks like, understanding Christ's heart to reach all the nations, and yet living as if you're not really supposed to be on mission. I believe that a right understanding of the end of the age should regularly motivate you to boldness in praying. God, give us grace to convert East Dayton. God, give us grace to, to bring about a repentance in our country. God give us grace to see abortion ended within a few years, not 40 more years of the slaughter of children. Understanding post-millennial hope, that is the, the belief that Jesus Christ is bringing about a redemption for the whole world that that will affect every people group, I'm not saying that everyone will get saved, but it will be in every place, should routinely move you to your knees in petitioning that the, the one on the throne would dispense his grace and understanding that we would be properly motivated. And that we would be delivered from causes, concerns, things which keep us back from declaring the full counsel of God. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We love his ascension. We glorify him today. We say that he is worthy to receive all worship. We thank you, Lord, that you gave us John the Revelator's account where in which we see the Lamb of God receiving worship. But Lord, we confess that we, although we know your spirit is still active today, we confess that we are so powerless. And we we so lack in in grace, Lord, that that although you have given everything, Lord, we have subtly bought into spirits and systems of unbelief. We pray that you would deliver us from these things. We also pray, Lord, that you would cause us to become optimistic concerning your future that you're bringing about, that we would rightly see the error of our country, but we would not translate that into saying something about you and your nature and your effectiveness. God, we pray that you would deliver us from knowing things, but not really living as if we know them. We pray that today that we would warmly celebrate your son's ascension and that we would seek him for grace. In Jesus' name, amen.